This episode of the Bucktails podcast is brought to you by Pistol Creek and Trip Sporting Goods. Oh, good blood. All right, that's some good blood here. Yeah. Look at that. Good deer, babe. Welcome back, Mr. Barber, Jonathan Barber with Pistol Creek. I think this is attempt number uh, 229 uh, through two different days uh, to record. Is What was it, about a month ago we tried to record? Yeah, it was, it was right out about a month ago now. Um, and kind of made a link up since then, but it seems like something's always popping up with technology, whatever. <laughs> yeah, well, between work or I think one time you had a, a tractor or seven down. Um, yeah. <laughs> You had, you've yeah. had tractors down. You've got a, a very pregnant wife. Uh, I'm playing in a golf tournament in a couple of weeks. So I've been trying to get back in the swing of things there. And yeah, just life. I mean, heck, we both got kids and busy. So that's how it goes. But glad to have you back yeah, on. Yeah. <laughs> Tonight we have tried, um, Google Meet. We've tried StreamYard. We've tried Zoom. Uh, none of the above work. So, Jonathan is on speaker on my phone, and I have a video recording. Not sure if I'll use it, but hey, we are coming to you from the Bucktails podcast, the most podunk podcast out there. So, um, yeah, so we got a little bit, we got pretty far into our first recording, and then my Wi Fi crapped out. So that was the first issue, but we did get to talk a little bit about how you got involved with Pistol Creek, and it's a heck of a story. So if you don't care, man, uh, go into that a little bit about how did you get connected? Like what's the, how did you get connected with Pistol Creek? Well, I'd love to run, run it by again, man. Uh, it's one of my favorite things to talk about actually. Um, well, um, I've, I've always been a pretty serious turkey hunter. Um, and, uh, I was probably, I don't know, 13, 14 years old, something like that. And I ran across a book at a uh, a library. Our school took us to the library, and we had to pick out one book. Well, I was digging around in this bin, and, you know, kids back then were all into goosebumps, and you name it. And I picked up book after book and didn't like what I found. And I happened to grab one book and read the title, and it said, Compositions of a Sickness. And that is a book written by one of our own at Pistol Creek, uh, Donald Devereaux Jarrett. Um, I fell absolutely in love with this book and he kind of became a hero to me over the years. Um, I never thought I'd actually get, get to meet him and build the relationship we have now. But, um, if you fast forward to, uh, eight years ago, something like that. Um, we were on a turkey hunting group, chat group on Facebook and we started talking back and forth and, uh, I kind of asked him, I was like, are you Donald Devereaux Jarrett, like the, the author that writes for Georgia Outdoor News, wrote this book? And he's like, yeah. <laughs> I just, uh, I was in awe, in all honesty, man. Um, I, I found my hero. And, well, we uh, talked more and more about turkey hunting together, and we realized we were both sick with it. We started turkey hunting together. Uh, have grown a relationship that I would like to call him 
he's more my brother than he is anything else. And um, as it sits, uh, whenever we got really close, I wanted to do something special for him regarding, uh, you know, the, his book and stuff like how much the book meant to me. So I reached out to a call maker by the name of John Browning and asked him to uh, build a call for Donald. And he did, and that started a relationship with me and John. And uh, a few years later, I'm I'm on staff. I've been on staff now for three years, I believe. Yeah, and that's a a testament to how small the hunting world truly is. I mean, as a kid, you read a book by a guy that you you know idolized or looked up to, kind of a you know, like you said, a hero. And then, you know, fast forward to adulthood, and now you're on the same pro staff. I mean, what? I mean, wow, full circle. I mean, that's uh, that's incredible. Uh, and I, I know that Donald has, has done a lot of riding in the outdoors. And, I, you know, before I talked to you the first time, you know, I didn't know that he had written books. I knew he was like an outdoor writer of sorts. He'd written articles and things. But he's uh, much more accomplished than I think a lot of people know. So I need to get him on that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, he also... Uh, he writes uh, for Mossy Oaks uh, articles and stuff like that as well. Um, he's very, very uh, solid in, in, in that game, that's for sure. Gotcha. Yeah, I need to get him on here pretty soon. I need to, I'm, I'm trying to ramp up some more of the Pistol Creek guys on the podcast this fall. And then even if I re- release some of the turkey hunting stories, you know, in February and March as we're leading up to turkey season. But yeah, I need to get some more you know, turkey specific stuff on there from, the, from, you know, the, the Creek bank and uh, definitely to get him on. Cause I'm sure he's got plenty to talk about and plenty that he's seen and does. And I know he guides up in South Dakota, I believe somewhere up there. Yeah. South Dakota and Nebraska. Yeah. Um, I so believe I, he's been doing that for almost 30 years now. Yeah. So I mean, I mean, being a guide, like it's, there's no telling the stories that he's got of turkeys and, you know, just the crazy things that happen just to normal everyday hunters. But as a guy doing it like that, as much as he does, yeah, I'm sure he's got some insane stories. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. So moving on into what we had kind of, you know, I don't like to have an outline of sorts, but I do want to hit the things that we talked about because it was going pretty good until Wi-Fi, you know, shot us in the foot. But so you work at, is it Bethesda? Is that the right name? Yes, it's uh, Bethesda uh, Academy is the basically the, the parent of where I work. I work for uh, the Bethesda Wildlife Preserve. Um, we are a uh, full-time bird dog operation, essentially all upland hunting. Uh, it's a private membership and all of our proceeds go to uh, basically the Bethesda Academy School, which is a all boys private school here in uh, Savannah, Georgia. Gotcha. So the school, I wanted to dive into this a little bit more on the school itself. So is it, you said it's a private school. Like, do y'all have athletics y'all have teams is it uh like a boarding school is it just kids from the area that go there like what kind of uh you know what kind of school is it yeah that's a uh, very interesting uh about bethesda um i have to give you the history on it before i can even lead into what it is now 
Um, it was started in 1740, um, in colonial times, 1740, um, as an orphanage and it stayed an orphanage slash boys home until 90, the early nineties. Um, at that time it was, a a boarding school for at-risk youth in the inner city in Savannah. Um, they still had, you know, kids without parents and stuff like that, but they started pulling in just other kids that just had economic issues or, you know, issues within their family and stuff like that. And it still tried to, to stay on the same idea that it was built on, which was taking these kids who are at a disadvantage teaching them skills, different things like that, educating them, preparing them for life and trying to give them a new, new lease on everything. And it still does that to this day. Uh, the kids get to work on the cattle farm. They get to come over to the wildlife reserve and work with me, putting in food plots, you, you name it. Um, it's a pretty, pretty special place. No, that's impressive. That's uh, you know, that's something that more schools, I believe should be, I mean, not, not all schools have the resources like y'all do on a preserve and have the, you know, access to food plus and things like that. But that's incredible. You know, you get your traditional education, but they also get to see the outdoors and wildlife management, you know, in a sense. So do you, do you get to teach or like lead some classes there or, you know, do you have like a teaching capacity at all with the school? I do. I do. Um, what was originally uh, simply work studies where the kids just came in, you know, had certain tasks that they would do. We've actually kind of transitioned into exploratory classes. Uh, like one for this, this semester I taught was uh, wildlife management and it's a very broad wildlife management, but we cover deer, turkey, quail, um, a little bit of pond management, different things like that. And, they got to come with me the entire semester and learn what wildlife management is. Why are you managing, you know, the habitat for the wildlife? Just from front to back, they got a, a touch on a little bit of everything, including um, they were able to design, prepare, and plant um, some food plots. And they had to present to me, you know, what their plans were why they were doing it, why this food pot was placed in this certain area. Um, and it was really special to see some of these kids who, without this program, their entire lives, they probably never will be exposed to this type of thing. And the lights go off on their head and, you know, really enjoy doing what they were doing. It was a very special, special class. Yeah, I mean, that, that is, like I said, that's awesome. That's I wish there were more chances for kids like that to you know because a lot of kids don't even know that wildlife management could be a job or you know that could be a major in college or something that you guys do I mean and there's a lot that goes into it I mean I'm you know I, I do a good bit in the fishing world of fish tournaments things like that so I love to see about pond management and like you know the ideas behind lake management things like that you know the shock studies that pe that they do and just you know fish behavior but it's, you know, one of those things that growing up, you know, I didn't know how to get into that industry at all or and a lot of, a lot of kids don't. So, uh, no, that's, that's impressive. That's incredible. So that's, uh, I'm sure that's very rewarding to you to see those kids, you know, how they react to it and, um, you know, getting to show them a little bit, you know, a little view inside your world. Absolutely. Um, 
you know, with my passion regarding the conservation and management and stuff like that, um, it's something that I see that uh, it's a close-knit community. It's a small community. Um, and I've, I've had fears that that type of work would one day disappear, but seeing kids engage in it um, and engage in it passionately um, is very, very rewarding. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and then you said, we talked a little bit last time about the upland bird hunting, and that is something uh, that I have never been around, never been a part of. So I asked a lot of questions last time, and I'm going to ask them again because, you know, a lot of the listeners are from North Georgia. We're up here in the mountains, so, you know, there's not a lot of upland bird hunting up here. Um, so right. I know you said you're kind of, you know, a bird dog, you know, upland bird hunting type place and that you, you know, do you know, kind of guided trips, y'all have, y'all put the quail out. So what all, first of all, what all kind of birds do y'all hunt? You know, what type of upland bird do y'all, you know, offer down there? Yeah. Um, our, our primary species that we're typically hunting is your Northern bobwhite quail. Um, we do have carryover birds, things like that naturally occurring on the property, but nowhere near, um, what would be ideal to be able to conduct the type of hunts we have. So we do have quail that are uh, pin raised and pre-released. And then we also do tower pheasant shoots. Um, and on the tower pheasant shoots, you know, we, we normally have about 30 people that get to participate in this couple hour shoot where we release the birds off the towers um, and then we actually get to follow up on those uh, in the days following the tower shoot with our bird dogs going out and finding them. Um, and you'd be surprised at how quickly those types of birds uh, <laughs> readjust to being in the wild versus being in those pens. Um, it gets really fun out there when they're out there um, just kind of milling around and going back to what they naturally do. And then we also got chucker birds that we hunt. Chuckers are, um, the best way for me to describe a chucker would be if a quail, a dove, and a pheasant all created a whole another type of bird. They are from the Middle East, They're kind of like a mountain, you know, desert mountain bird, but they are really hardy birds. They're really tough animals, and they're my favorite to hunt and especially to eat, <laughs> that's for sure. Nice. How, how big do they get about? Um, size of about as close to what you would see on an average chicken or something like that. Okay. Nice. Yeah. That's what I was going to ask too, is that I'm, I'm sure, you know, after all the hunting and stuff that y'all do down there, I've never, I've never eaten quail. I've eaten plenty of, you know, wild turkey, things like that. But, uh, yeah, I'm sure the quail's good. I've, I haven't eaten, I'm not sure that I've eaten duck, but you know, all any, any kind of hunted bird, I'm sure, is going to taste great. But yeah, I've never heard of a chucker, so a Middle Eastern bird. But you said that's your favorite to hunt for sure. Oh yeah, um, they're, they're my favorite to hunt. For one, uh, when they, it doesn't matter what they're in, whether it's heavy brush or tall grass, they bust up out of there whenever it's time to get out of there. And I mean, it, so you can always expect them to get in some tight spots and have some you know challenging shots and 
that's probably the most fun with it um, is just how challenging it could be. And it can, you know, really test a dog. And sometimes that's actually exactly what you need to bring a dog around to its, you know, its top performances, trying to find and, you know, hunt those chuckers because they could definitely pose a challenge to any dog. And that's my favorite part really about it is the dog work. Gotcha. Yeah, I uh, I've got some buddies of mine who uh, actually Daniel Tritt who runs Tritt Sporting goes up in Dahlonega. He's got a GSP and they usually take a trip every year, sometime in the fall. I forget the exact you know month that they go, but they take a, a trip up to Wisconsin to go grouse hunting with their dog. So you know yeah, and he's yeah. he's put out a couple of YouTube videos and I've you know seen seen kind of how they do it. Is it pretty similar to what they do what what they what they're doing? with a dog like as far as grouse hunting is it pretty close yeah it is it is it's very similar because like i said they, you know they like to get in the jump and just you know the hardest stuff to get into and grouse do the same thing there's a small population of grouse in in northern georgia they're really hard to get on most people who want to hunt them head you know to your midwest states and stuff like that but it's a very very similar hunting um with the chuckers Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, I figured it was. And like you're saying, the uh, hunting with a dog is a huge benefit. You know, growing up, we had a few squirrel dogs. I had one when I was in college that I wish I could have hunted more, but just didn't have the time. And then a lot of the places that I would wanted to take him squirrel hunting, I deer hunted too. So then that, that kind of put a, a bind on. I could hunt some what in August whenever small game opens and then like in February. So I didn't really get to hunt him a whole lot, but just watching a dog work is is a lot of fun and i've got a dog now that will kind of track a deer you know blood track a deer he's not well trained by any means but he does a decent job for us and, and even on easy tracks we'll you know if, if we're close to the house you know we'll go get him and let him work just to just to let it just to watch him do his thing i mean he's he's it's a lot of fun to get behind a dog and i'm sure yours are very highly trained and you know you know very good at what they do so i'm sure that's even more of a more of a uh more of a benefit it definitely is they're very much so professionals and they're serious about their job um these bird dogs absolutely love what they do and that makes it a lot easier when it comes to the training and the work of them is when you have a dog who just absolutely loves doing what they're doing you have a little bit of a correction with them and a little bit of training and get them doing the things that you need them to do, man. It's it's beautiful to watch a dog come together. It really is. No, that that's amazing. So, um, I think I asked you this last time too, but uh, so y'all do the upland quail hunting? Did you say there are there ponds on the property that you know the the members can fish too? Yeah, okay. yeah. We've got um, we've got two primary ponds that are really for the fishing. Um. We've got a 55-acre uh, trophy-managed bass lake, and we have about a two-acre little bluegill lake. Um, for the most part, everybody get, gets out there to the uh, bass lake, and, I mean, it's it's some of the best fishing in this area, and I could say that as somebody who's wet a line at just about every, every mud puddle from here, you know, for 100 miles. It's, it's some of the best fishing that you can imagine. Gotcha. And, and is all that closed to the members or is there a way for like people to come and fish that or how, is that just, is it closed off? 
Um, it's it's for the most part it's closed off now. Right. You know we there's deceptions made depending on certain situations. Um, you know we the staff at the school are allowed to come fishing uh, periodically. They have you know of course because we're firing shotguns different things like that they have to arrange the timing with us. But the staff gets to come, the membership, um, they get to come fish whenever they want, essentially. Um, bring their kids anytime, bring family members. But as in a public access, for the most part, it is closed off. Gotcha. And the reason why I asked is I used to, I went on a few hunting and fishing trips with an organization called the United Special Sportsmen's Alliance. So kids with... Okay. Uh, terminal illnesses or, you know, life-changing ailments or disabilities. I got to go to Lake Gunnersville fishing. I, was, I killed a bear in Wisconsin, you know, went to a lot of really, really neat places with them. So I need to, I need to, you know, get, well, we can talk more after this to see if that'd be something that you might could get, even if it's like where, where my mind's going, if it's a pond where you could, where you, I mean, if you had, you know, access where you could get like kids in a wheelchair, like even if it's just two or three out there bank fishing or something, we I could get you in contact with some people if that'd be something that y'all could do. So, but we can talk about that more off air. But, oh, absolutely. Uh, let me know. That'd be something we'd love to do. Um, yeah. We already are planning on trying to do some type of youth fishing derby or something like that come yeah. uh, March. Uh, so, you know, I would absolutely be open to that and be honored to have the guys there. Yeah, that'd, that'd be that'd be pretty neat because I know they they do a lot of really cool stuff like that. I mean, they have a a summer fest. I believe it's up in Wisconsin at like you know at these trophy managed lakes and ponds, and it's like a big big long you know week long thing they do up there. They do bear hunts all over the place, deer. I mean, turkeys. I mean, that's how I killed my first turkey was actually on a USSA hunt in Alabama. So I mean they I mean, that that's how I kind of got into into turkey hunting really, but uh so they're they're a great organization but we can talk more about that later on try to get some details going there that'd be really neat, um yeah I'd love to but yeah man uh, so that's kind of covered what you do where you're from uh, I, I like to do a little bit of a background I'm sure some of the listeners don't enjoy that but I like I like getting to know people especially since we're on a pro staff together I like to know who I'm talking to you know but um. Yeah. So yeah, let's, uh, how did you get into hunting? And I, I know that's kind of a cliche question, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of twist that. What is your earliest memory of not just talking about hunting or watching like a show or something like that with your, you know, with family, but like you're at your first memory of actually being like in the woods, like your first hunting trip. What's your first memory? Um, my first distinct memory was I had to have been three or four years old, man, um, somewhere in that range. And I was going with my father to uh, preseason scout for turkeys. And I remember, you know, I always went with him, but this particular day was the first time that I heard a gobble and was like, that's a turkey making that sound. And <laughs> we got out there, you know, of course, you know, I'm out there kicking rocks before the sun comes up, you know, just being a little kid. And uh, my dad kept telling me to be quiet, be quiet. And he said, just listen for a turkey to gobble. Well, the good Lord blessed us with one um, that was maybe 70 yards away. 
and I about jumped out of my boots whenever he went off. And uh, <laughs> I've been absolutely sick ever since. I can just I can remember that very distinctly. Everything about it. Um, that is my first full memory regarding being out in the woods was that preseason scouting. And after that, um, I believe I drove my dad absolutely insane wanting to go every time. Yeah, that that's awesome. That's uh, the first time you hear a turkey gobble. And I know the first time I heard one, I was I was not that young. I was I was older, probably maybe on that trip to Alabama with the USSA. Mm-hmm. You know, first time I heard one, I'd, I'd heard you know recordings of it, videos, whatever. But you know, my dad is was never has never been a huge turkey hunter. He's killed a few, but not you know huge into it. Um, but yeah, it's a not unnerving but it's just it's a it's a soul shaking sound when you first hear one and especially when you finally get one to answer to something that you're doing like if you call and he responds to you oh my like it it gives you chills you're just like and i think that's why we loved it so much you know us turkey hunters is you've you've took a piece of wood and scraped it on a piece of glass or you've taken a diaphragm and vibrated it in your mouth and he thought you were a turkey and he hollered back at you you know that's why like same thing with fishing. He made a fish eat something plastic or metal. You fooled him, and that's—I mean—that's to me, that's the chase. You know, you've, you know, mimicked something wild, and yeah. But you know, I mean, it, yeah, it gives you chills thinking of about a turkey gobbling or something that you did. But uh, no, that—that's an awesome. Oh, that's an awesome early memory for you there. My my first memory is probably in a box stand. On down on Pistol Creek in Wilkes County, probably hunting. We have box stands on fields down there, and we used to bring games and snacks and pillows, and we would curl up and take naps in the in the bot in the in the floor of a box stand. You know, that's probably my earliest memory of actually hunting. <clears throat> hunting would be going to a box stand so we could be hidden. You know, we could move around, and deer wouldn't see us as much. So that's probably my first earliest memory it to come to think of it so but yeah um so would you say between turkey and deer hunting is turkey like does it take the cake is it like far and ahead your favorite thing to do as far as like the big- it's not comparable yeah. it's it's not comparable man um I, i've said it a million times if if the lord came to me and said jonathan I'll let you kill 150, 160, 70-inch deer every single time you go out for the rest of your life, or would you have one more morning of turkey hunting? And that's it. What would you do? I I would go turkey hunting, and I would not be upset about it at all. (laughs) It's it's definitely turkey for me, definitely. Yeah, I've... I haven't heard it explained quite that way, but I mean that that's a pretty pretty strong feeling you've got there. <laughs> it is, it is. I mean, it, this rest of the time, you know, deer season. I I I love deer hunting. I do. Um, I love you know trying to kill mature deer. Um, I love taking my sons out, and you know my my eight year old, which he's nine now, killed his first deer last year, decent eight point. I love every bit of all that. Um, I grew up doing it my entire life, but um, 
for me, it's just not on a comparable level with turkey hunting. Um, everything else is to get by till next turkey season for me. Gotcha. Yeah, so just just to pass the time. Yep, <laughs> just to pass the time. And to hope maybe, just maybe on a cool fall morning, I'll just hear a gobble for no reason. <laughs> yeah, well, one of the one of the neatest uh, trail cam videos that I've ever had was in late June. And and most of the time, if I had a video going, I wouldn't have the sound on my computer. I'm just clicking through, seeing if I see a buck or, you know, looking for deer, you know. And for whatever reason, I had the sound on on my computer one day. And it was, like I said, it was middle mid to late June one summer, a few years ago. And this turkey gobbled like crazy. Thankfully, there was a doe in front of the camera on a salt lick that kept on moving and getting the camera to, you know, to click on. And yeah. I'm talking, I bet I have 30 to 35 gobbles of that turkey. I mean, he had to be in the tree that the camera was on or right there close to it. Because, I mean, it was, I mean, it, it like got the maximum of my computer speakers going. I mean, it, and, and and that was probably wasn't all that he gobbled either because that was just when the doe moved, camera cut on for five seconds, and you'd, you'd hear him gobble. I mean, it was, wow. so there's no telling how many times he gobbled, but it was middle of the summer. I mean, I I feel like I, I would have been like, there's there's probably someone over there gobbling with a with a tube or something like that. You know, I would have I would have never believed it if I'd have been down there in you know middle Georgia in the heat and a turkey's just hammering all morning. But yeah, but yeah, that's uh random gobbles in the middle of the summer. That's the it, it was a very interesting trail cam check for sure. But um, well, <laughs> yeah, I I took it. I, I sent it to John. I was like. Have you ever heard one gobble in the summer down there? He's like, no, that's middle of June, you know. But no, it was interesting. Now we've heard them down there in the fall, like you know they'll, you know that they'll do that a little bit down there. September, October, I've heard them gobble pretty good one morning, but um, never in the summer until that you know that truck cam video. But uh, we can yeah. jump in, jump into a couple of uh, viewer questions. I usually don't have many of these, but. You asked some questions on yours, and uh, remind me, David Barber, who's David to you? Uh, that is my uncle. Uh, oh. My uncle David um, is a biologist and okay. uh, avid hunter, and he always has some good questions. So yeah, so he's got <laughs> yeah he's got two or three. So one of them, the first one, and this is not really a hot topic, but it's you know a topic of discussion for sure with the TSS versus your old school. And he said, uh, just you know, what what are your preferences for you know, a turkey gauge, choke, shot, uh, you know, he said he's always been a 12-gauge, three-and-a-half-inch Mossberg Ultimat, Ultramag kind of guy, and now these new ones, people are killing them with 410, you know, I I, I, ha I have a 20-gauge I shoot TSS out of, I have a 410 I shoot TSS out of, so what are your views on that, you know, what do you use, and just, yeah, just take it away. Um. I actually have uh, gone down to a 410 uh, myself. I do. I have every gauge set up and ready to go, um, and I have gotten on the TSS train as well. Um, that's why I do shoot a 410. What I love about that 410 is with TSS, I feel like any shot that I personally would take with a 12-gauge I can kill a turkey with that 410. And, you know, I'm not one to shoot. I don't believe I've shot past 30 yards in 
probably seven or eight years, something like that. Um, you know, most of my shots are 20 to 25 yards. And, you know, that 410 does well, well enough to do that at that range. I, I could kill them way further than that. I just, you know, I haven't. Uh, just, just for me, I like them up close and personal. And uh, that 410 gives me the advantage of being able to do that with not even half the weight of that 12 gauge. Plus, my kids are getting into a, uh, wanting a turkey hunt, and I've got multiple stocks for my 410s. So, if uh, you know Thursday morning my son decides that he's jumping in the truck and we're going turkey hunting, all I have to do is take that stock off real quick, pop it on, pop the one that fits him on there, and we're ready to roll. Um, and he can shoot that thing without without a fear in, in the world um so i've i've gotten to really enjoy uh you know small gauge shotguns and tss i'm definitely on the train with both of those yeah and that's you know i feel like a lot of it is you know kind of it's almost like a craft beer or a craft tea cra- you know it's like a there's a lot of the smaller companies that make are making these craft shotgun shells if you want to put it that way yeah. Like yep. you know, the procure they they've got a lot of research and science that back it, and you know I teach physics. You're literally a scientist, so you know digging into the numbers. I'm like, and like if you don't need the extra power behind it, and the 410 or a 20 gauge is doing more than enough. I mean, and tungsten is so dense that, and that's the what people don't understand. Well, well, it's just a 410. I'm like, yeah, but you got nine shot. Seven, eight, seven, eight, or nine shot, or maybe it's a blend. They've got so many out there, you know. But nine shot's so small, but it's so dense. It, it's got the same weight that you know the bigger shot would. So I mean, it's it penetrates better. It's smaller. So I mean, there's you know a two or threefold benefit there. And I, I know you know all this, but this is just the you know talking to the listeners out there. I mean, it, it's it's incredible what they're doing with it. And I'm, I'm like you. Just because you could hunt with a 12 gauge with t- a three and a half inch TSS and maybe kill a turkey at 70 yards or 60, you know, you you hear some crazy stories out there, but it's like, yeah. I mean, is it really worth it to possibly injure the bird or you know the the shot spreads out and you injure a hen beside the gobbler you're trying to shoot? I mean, is it worth it? I mean, I, I don't think so. Um, and yeah. heck, and heck, hunting up here in the mountains. I mean, unless you're hunting a field situation, if you're in the woods and you're using, you know, I try to use woodsmanship so that way the terrain kind of hides me from the turkey. So that way, whenever I see him, he's within range. Because you know, I've I've had a few hunts where it's across a ditch and he's fifty five, sixty yards away, and I'm like, crap. You know, he's he can see you a lot better than you can see him. So you know. Yeah. Typically, like you said, you want them to get in there 20, 25 yards, and those 410 TSS shells, they're wicked. I mean, it's its impressive what they're doing. And then... Uh, yeah, if, I can, if yeah. I can keep the same, you know, energy with nine and a half, nine in a 410 as a 20-gauge, like six or seven lead, and then have a... Most of the time, in all honesty, a more dense pattern with more more shot i mean that's a win-win mm-hmm. um i think anybody who and anybody who, who is against going smaller gauge tss they either don't understand the science behind it which is fine 
or they just have some, you know, they're, they're not ready to move on from what's been, you know, the standard for decades now, which was understandable because the, the type of ammunition available just wasn't ideal for being able to do that. But now that it's here, it's, it's an advantage. And I believe it's one that, you know, for me is one I'm going to take, you know, take, I'm definitely going to go with any advantage I can. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, it's uh, a lot of people are of the mindset they're they're old school. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. And that's you know, I, I was not an early adopter of TSS because I you know I I hunted with a still hunt with a twenty gauge most of the time, but um, I would hunt with twenty gauge is like Winchester Supreme five shot, like just the uh, not not even the Winchester XP long beard or you know any nothing high dollar. It was cheap. It was five shot, but it killed turkeys. So I'm like, man, why would I spend four or five times the money when this is killing birds. But then I started, you know, doing my research. I'm like, oh, dang, there's that much more shot. There's that many more pellets, and they, and they weigh more. Count me in, you know. So, yeah, of course, I'm buying, I'm buying TSS now. I've got 410 to take two. So, I mean, it's, yeah, once you look at it and look at the, the information behind it, you're like, uh, yeah, that's a no-brainer. I mean, it makes sense. But, yeah. um. You know, my first bird was with a single shot 20 gauge, um, like number seven bird load or something. Now I shot that bird from about 12 steps. Um, and then after that, I, I actually owned an Ultimag for many years and shot only three and a half inch long beards. But um, right. I, I tested some 410s and I saw what they could do. And I saw the advantages of being able to move with them, you know, just there's a big difference for me. Oh, and here's another advantage. Some people don't realize as light as that gun is. Say if you've got a bird that's just in range or he's behind some stuff that you still feel, if you move, you can see you can hold that 410 up all day long, all yeah. day long. And that's another big thing for me. Um, really big thing for me. Yeah. Well, and two, and something like as, as guys are getting older, they may not want to admit that, you know, their shoulders are not what they used to be. And, you know, trying to tote, you know, one, carry that a 12 gauge, you know, big heavy gun. And then, and then two, the recoil of a 12 gauge, three and a half inch. I mean, that's like me, like I, I'm, I'm not that big of a guy. Like I'm not, I'm not going to shoot a three and a half inch, 12 gauge turkey load. Not going to happen. Heck, a 20 yeah. gauge TSS, what, like, this is what something I, I didn't think about, but a Tia, like if, if I was shooting my, my old shot, you know, my five shot Winchester Supreme versus the TSS, the TSS kicks a little bit harder, I mean, it, but it, I mean, it, it's, 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 you know, con conservation momentum. It's keeping, there's a lot more mass going out. So it's going to kick a little bit harder. So, I mean, it's like for me, like even going down to a 410, heck, I mean, not that you, you don't feel the recoil when you're, you know, shooting at the turkey you, you you don't feel it but at the same time i mean i've seen guys come back with a black and blue shoulder they're like yeah i didn't feel it when i shot the turkey but boy i'm hurting now you know that's you know so it's it's a it's a good thing for more hunters to get involved to not have to worry about you know thinking they have to shoot a three and a half inch 12 gauge ultimag you know mossberg <laughs> so yeah especially if you're serious about patterning and really knowing what you're particular whatever shotgun that is that you that you go with if you're serious about patterning it and knowing its capabilities it can get very taxing 
to shoot a 12 gauge mm-hmm. over and over and over. Um, and I've, I'm definitely happy that that part of it is no yeah. longer something I have well, to worry about. Yeah, well, and that's something I think you owe to the owe to the turkey is knowing what your gun can do. I mean, I shoot I shoot my TSS as few times as possible. I've got a red dot on my twenty gauge, and I'll usually shoot like a target load or a bird shot, something a lot lighter. You know, get it get the red dot get the red dot close. Then I'll pull. Then I'll you know put a TSS in there, and make sure it's centered. I'm like, all right, we're good. You know, make sure it's yeah. patterned and right. But no, you're right. But you I mean to you need to test out your shot to make sure that you're going to make a lethal kill, lethal shot on the turkey. And yeah, shooting a 12 gauge four or five, six times does not sound fun right now. (laughs) No, not at all. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Let's see what the next question was. And I was going to go into something else too, that made me, you know, made me think about uh, after that was the guys that some, you know, some guys, I'm sure, are still out there that hunt with a 12-gauge, 3.5-inch TSS load. Like, TSS is the new thing, but they haven't, you know, they haven't dialed it back to a 3-inch or a 20-gauge. They're like, nope, 3.5 is what I want to shoot. You know, that's, to me, it's kind of overkill. It's like up in North Georgia, there's a lot of guys that hunt with a 300 wind mag or some, a lot, some of the short mag calibers that are, you know, built for longer range. And even you, I'm sure you've heard the jokes about if you buy a six five Creedmoor or a two seventy, you better hope it comes with a tracking dog. You know, you you've heard those sayings. I've heard plenty of Yeah, and it's like a two seventy is a very lethal gun. Six five Creedmoor, very lethal. Three hundred wind mag, very lethal, obviously. But if you shoot a two seventy if you shoot a deer with a two seventy at forty five yards, that bullet's moving so fast it doesn't have a chance to expand. So it might not bleed. Yeah. It's like it's one of those like it you know, you you hear stories about that man. I shot him a three hundred wind mag. He didn't bleed at all. Couldn't find him. I'm like, how far was your shot? Oh, fifty five yards. I'm like, well, here's your sign. You know, like I hate it for you, but it's you know they're just not going to bleed as much. Yeah, but, yeah absolutely. All right, let's see the um the next question David had was he said let's hear some discussion about how current forestry practices pure monoculture and heavy use of herbicide heavy use of herbicides lack of timely and controlled burning may be impacting turkey populations. Like, and, he, and he goes on to say, it's not just coyotes and other predators that are the problem. So do you want me to read that again, or are you good on the... No, I got okay. it. I got it. Um, well, uh, I, I agree that it's not just coyotes that are the problem. Um, and primarily because a lot of the recent years of the type of forestry practices that we've had has created habitat that is more beneficial to predators than it is to prey. Um, it's put them in a position where it's, you know, it's, it's harder to get away from everything from a coyote to you name it. Um, it's just really put them in a situation where they're at a disadvantage in, in comparison. Um, one of those things, uh, would be the they've moved away from when they do want to thin from prescribed burns and things like that to aerial herbicide uh, applications where um, you know majority of the south now is you know pine plantation well to get rid of the sweet gum or any other uh, 
you know, hardwoods or even, you know, you know, different types of other vegetation, they're going in and they're spraying aerial herbicides and it's killing pretty much everything other than the pine trees. And that's created a monoculture, which monoculture just simply means, you know, one primary species has the control over that particular area. And um, that's reduced the amount of browse available for deer and turkey. Um, it's changed the way that uh, cover is being used by different species. Um, it's uh, It makes some areas where it's just wide open pines and pine straw. And yes, a turkey likes to be in an area where they can look around and, you know, see for a good distance, but they also need cover especially when uh when we're recruiting poults and everything like that trying to raise up poults they need good overhead cover to keep away from the hawks they need uh cover directly in front of them for coyotes they need somewhere to tuck down and a lot of the practices the you know aerial herbicide the mechanical thinning instead of using fire where they go in and just go in between the rows and knock everything down um, that's created some issues and then there's a big swing uh, currently that's been going on for probably a decade now from pole timber to pulp timber which pulp timber they they don't need really mature pines to be able to create pulp so the successional stages within these pine forests are not able to get to different levels. It's all it's all one solid level. And by the, by the time they're 10 to 12, 15 years at the most, these pines are being harvested. And the turnover of habitat is extremely high. So that's another way that they've affected uh, habitat. Um, it all comes, in my opinion, it all comes to habitat, 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 for the most part, at least when it, you know, regarding the decimation of the turkey population, especially in the Southeast. Um, everything from nutrition to uh, being able to recruit poults to avoiding predators is all directly it's all directly related to a lot of uh, forestry practices that are currently installed and heavily used. Gotcha. Now, is that something that is regulated at the state level or local level? Or I mean, as far as like you were talking about, there's the, the herbicides they spray that kills everything except for the pine trees. Is that something that should be managed at the state level or is it managed and people don't listen like how does like how does that work like is does there or does there need to be more regulations and you know legislature um there there's re there's regulation regarding it um it's it's kind of like one of those situations where um if you take from here you got to give here but when it comes to the timber industry, um, there's the best way to put this leniency on certain things and ways to, uh, 
basically you're chasing the dollar, man. There, there's so much yeah. money involved in timber that it's uh, they're always going to have the advantage on whatever practices that they really want because they're you know they're able to control that whole lot. Um, so essentially, the regulation's there, but the regulation is not directed in the right direction. Gotcha. That's that's what I figured is that it's uh, you know I I know the DNR and their you know our wildlife agencies are probably fighting for you know more regulation or more like at least you know look at the data see you know see if you can help the wildlife populations but like you said money talks and big big timber is is going to bring in money so yeah i mean that unfortunately it sounds like that's kind of fighting a losing battle but um the biggest thing about it though um that i tried to kind of get people to understand is you know us talking about it here and other people involved in wildlife whether it's hunting or just straight conservation or whatever we're a much smaller percentage of concern to the people who make those decisions to build upon that type of thing so i think everybody needs to get educated regarding it and people who may you know not hunt or something like that if we can get everybody to put the same understanding of what's going on what it's creating what it's causing um a little more awareness then maybe there will be enough pressure behind those who make those decisions to actually move forward with something that's pretty positive in that light right no that that makes perfect sense and that's it's because it's you know the hunting industry and hunters as a as a whole, like there are a lot of us out there, but in the big picture, they're really it's really not that big. There aren't that many of us. So yeah, like you yeah, said, I mean, and, there's millions of us, but there's way more, you know, that are not involved in that type of thing. And right. I mean, there's not enough of us that are involved in it that are vocal enough. Um, yeah, and you know that put in the time to really understand what it is that they're seeing. Um, you know, there's, there's some of us that love it, just don't have the the time or, or anything like that to really understand it. Um, and that's, that's something that, you know, this type of information needs to be more readily available to the public so that they can, you know, make their own judgments on it and then decide whether, you know, something being voiced is worth it to them right and that's where you know turkeys for tomorrow the nwtf itself you know those those organizations that's where you know turkeys for tomorrow uh, i think is getting you know some good traction it's getting a lot more you know i know they talk a lot about you know the predator you know us trapping predators and things like that and that's that's got to happen but like you said i think a lot of what you were talking about with the herbicides and you know just the the pole wood versus pulp wood. I mean, a lot of that is people don't know what they don't know. Like that, that is what you just said had no, I had no idea that was an issue. Like we just went through, um, the, the land that we lease in Wilkes County just ha- we had like a massive clear cut and they, they took more than they were supposed to, I believe. But, um, I mean, they, they, I mean, it was some nice hardwood stands and it, I mean, it is, there's, it just, they took a bunch of it away. 
And now in yeah. a few in a few years, as it you know naturally comes back and gets thick and turns into thickets, it'll be really good for the turkey and the deer. It'll be great. But like this year, it took a very high percentage of the forest that we had. It's gone. I mean, it, there's nothing there. So uh, I mean, like this year, hopefully. We had, you know, a good crop this spring. The pulse are old enough now where they can make it, and then there'll be enough cover next spring for those new poles that come that come down. But um, yeah, and that's like all all of what you said. I had I, I had little to no idea about it. So I think that's people don't know what they don't know in that regard. Right. So you know, it's hard to be hard to be you know trying to fight for something if no one even knows it's a thing so that's a definitely a very biologist type question from david there so thank you david um but no that yeah that's uh see, that that's very interesting to me you know as a hunter as someone who you know wants obviously the best thing for the animals that's a it's a very diverse problem unfortunately but it, it is and again you know the People simplify the habitat argument to simply uh, throw some burns in there, you know, throw in some food plots, and you you approach the habitat, which it's it's a lot bigger issue, and there's a lot more variables involved in it um, than than most would realize. You know that, like you know that what started the conversation was you know it's comparison to predation, you know. Eliminating predators is, is, it works. It works. And one of the things that, you know, that's another issue regarding that is the amount of people who trap these days in comparison of just a decade ago is a huge, huge difference. Um, when I was growing up, I mean, heck, I, I think more than half of the people I knew that hunted in general also ran trap lines for different, you know, small mammals, you know, nest raiding uh, animals and stuff like that. And I, I know a handful of people who trap every single year now in my immediate area, at least, you know, on any serious note. Um, and it's nothing like it used to be, nothing like it used to be. And, you know, Again, when there's these other variables with, you know, habitat depletion and what habitat is left isn't ideal, then those predators who are, you know, don't have anything trying to manage their population, they just can run rampant and completely destroy, uh, you know, turkey populations, deer populations, um, rabbit you name it um that's something that makes it 10 times easier for them to get involved in and completely just ruin it right and that's the turkeys for tomorrow i believe has kind of ignited a lot of people to trap more i mean there's you know more traps being sold around my local area i know more people who are who are trapping and posting about it and it's you know it's a good push but hopefully you know it'll keep the traction it's gained so far and, you know, because you, you had to be consistent with it. Because once you quit, they're going to move back in. I mean, it's, you know, it, it, you have to keep on keeping on, you know, when you're trying to control predators. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, all right. So, next 
question he had on here was he asked, are you going to be wingbone calling a bird this year? <laughs> Actually, I am. Um, and I started using a wingbone and different types of like trumpet style calls four or five years ago. I have called a few in and killed them. Uh, and I've gotten to where I really, really enjoy doing it. But this year is actually going to be pretty special. Um, I lost my father uh, in June of this year. And um, me and my brother, you know, we grew up hunting. And dad took us any time that he could. And um, just a few years back, he had bought his second farm. Um, and... You know, it was his paradise. He wanted to turn it into something special for us, for him. Just what he always wanted to do. And um, just about a month and a half prior to my dad passing away, um, me and my brother were supposed to go to Texas to hunt Rios. And uh, flights got canceled. All kinds of stuff happened. And we didn't get to do it. Well, my brother harvested the first turkey harvested on my dad's farm this spring. And with the wing bones, he had matching calls made in uh, memory of my father. And um, it's made with the wing bones from that turkey harvested on that property. It's got his feathers inlaid in it. Um, and that call will be around my neck everywhere I go this year. Um, on every hunt and it will be my primary goal to harvest a bird with that call and with the one and only turkey shotgun my dad's ever owned so yes i will absolutely be running a wing bone this year yeah that's awesome I, i i love those those kind of stories and you know those those kind of things where it's you know, most of us have somebody who's who we've lost close to us, but you know, having something like that that means that much to you. I mean, that's you know, good luck to you. I I hope you have the most success you know you can possibly have with that thing. That's uh, it's going to be awesome to follow. Hopefully, we can get you on to talk about that this spring whenever you kill one with it. Love to, buddy. Love to. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And I, and I hate to hear that your dad passed, but I mean, that's uh, that's a great legacy that he left behind for sure. And uh. No, that that's that's incredible. Hopefully, you and your brother both will have some luck with that wingbone call. I have. Well, ne- I think we're going to try to uh, see if we can't get a bird on my dad's property with that call too, and um, you know, just kind of cap it off as uh, something very special that we'll carry with us for a very long time. Yeah, I mean, I I hope so. That that. I'm I'm looking forward to hearing about that. I'm looking forward to hearing uh, your stories and what what happens with that. It's going to be incredible. Look forward to it. Yeah, man. Um, another okay. We'll jump into kind of switching gears here. We'll talk about we got a couple of questions about feed from John Browning himself and Nick Judy, and then we'll probably yeah. then we can go ahead and call her quits for the night. It's 1032 here, so we'll, uh, so John's feed question, uh, is what do you think the effects of supplemental feeds are with the inevitable CWD so close to us 
and the adverse effects that it has on turkey. So just feeding in general, you know, statewide, we can feed for deer. You know, cannot yeah. cannot feed for turkey. People do, but you're not, you know, illegal to feed for turkey. But, yeah, so CWD and then how does feeding affect turkeys? All right. Um, CWD has slowly been uh, encroaching on Georgia. Um, there's been a few confirmed cases around. We have been noticing some... Um, uh, deer who seem to have been a casualty of something that we could not find any evidence of being shot or uh, car wrecks, anything like that. And they have been tested and we were waiting on that. So that was kind of a concern for us that it may be encroaching on my media area, which we kind of thought that we were safe for the time being. Um, but I don't CCWD currently as a problem for the wild turkey itself. It's uh, the supplemental feeding that is an issue for the wild turkey is like the, um, the amount of toxins found in um, corn. Um, it you, There's no real diseases that are too high of a concern right now. Um, the bird flu, different types of bird flus are a possibility, uh, but they haven't been confirmed yet. But one thing that is confirmed is um, every single bit of corn that you find out, feed corn that is put out, whether it's it's shelled or on the cob, is going to have a percentage of uh, toxins that are co- that come from molds and different things on that uh, that corn itself. Um, every research that I've seen where they tested, you know, trying to find any corn that didn't have it on it had failed. It's, you know, 100%. And the amount of toxins that a turkey can take in versus, say, a deer are much smaller. So it starts creating digestive issues, different things like that that can really have a huge impact on the turkey population. Um, the numbers for exactly how impactful it is are not solid yet. Um, that type of research is still in its infancy. But in my personal opinion, from what I've seen, um, I do believe that supplemental feeding um, can increase conditions in a turkey population that is possibly a major contributor to the decline of the population um, especially when you look at the timing of when um, that became legal in Georgia to debate for deer and the turkeys were already on the kind of downhill slide at that time but once it came in all of a sudden just it dropped off and in the years leading up to that uh Colt numbers were down, nesting numbers were down, even in areas that had ideal habitat. So I do believe there's some type of relation with it, whether it's the toxins from the mold or some other diseases that are uh, that avian, you know, birds are susceptible to. I do believe that has a big part of it. Okay. Yes, I knew very little about that i knew you know i'd heard people talk about you know 
a corn pile is not good for turkeys. I didn't know the real reason why, but um, yeah, that's that's very interesting. That's one of those things too that I think a lot of people you know don't know what they don't know. Unfortunately, yeah. you know, feeding you know because I mean, pretty much a hundred percent of the people that deer hunt around here are feeding for deer. You know, they're they're putting the corn out there for the deer, and if they have turkeys in the area, obviously the turkeys. I mean, it's it's a bird. They're gonna go go up and eat the corn. They're gonna eat seed. You know, they're gonna they're gonna find a food source, right? So I mean, it's yeah, and that that's just a kind of a sad you know side effect of feeding for deer. So is are there any? I mean, if someone out there listening were wanting to feed for turkeys, is there is there a safe feed? like for the off season or the winter time to supplement, to supplement feeding the turkeys that would help their habitat on your, on their property or, you know, keep turkeys around. Is, is there a safe thing to feed? Um, your best bet is to go with increasing, uh, natural grasses and browses and stuff like that, or implementing a food plot because the food plot's not going to be as compacted and everything as uh, a feed site would be the issue when it comes with feed sites it, there's two main issues um, one is saliva and all other types of fluids different things like that whenever every animal is eating within a very small general area that type of stuff kind of gets spread through there um, but also uh tracking you know just stepping in this stepping in that and then it all compacted all into one little area um for me in my opinion um uh, feeding turkeys in you know piles or just very small areas but for scratch and stuff like that is probably a bad idea um so i would more focus on creating natural brows and maybe implementing uh, some food plots that, you know, are beneficial for turkeys. Gosh, I know that makes perfect sense. Um, so the next question, last question we'll do for the night is from Nick Judy, another Creek Bank member. Um, he's a, So this is for deer, but when is the best time to begin protein supplements for deer? And is there a prescription, so to speak, based on time of year, the amounts provided, like, do you wean them? Like, do you need to hit them heavier with protein in the spring? Hit them hard in the summer? Um, gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the spring, starting in the spring is typically best right on the backside of the bucks losing their antlers. Um, cause then their body, you know, is kind of shifts into, um, you know, right, right after they lose their antlers, their body's preparing to regrow them um and that's bone mass so to be able to do that minerals like you know calcium different things like that are extremely important um protein is extremely important but also you have pregnant does who pretty much need almost double of everything at that time and then once they start nursing um and producing milk they need the same thing so um spring in early summer is the absolute best time, especially if your 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 goal is to increase antler mass. Um, I would, uh, you know, per hundred acres, I'd say two to three little mineral sites of whatever type. There, I'm not personally partial, you know, to anything in particular. I like 
I have my own little recipe um, of, you know, minerals that I create myself. Um, and in all honesty, it's, it's stuff that you get at your basic ag store that's um, really designed mainly for like a bovine species like you know cows and different things like that but they have all types of mineral um different types of minerals that you can get in bag form i mix mine up find an old stump or a hole in the ground pour it in there and i soak it down with some water and refill it every month and a half two months something like that and it's done great for me um it's done very well for other properties i've managed um I believe that's probably the best way to do minerals is to start it early spring, start to amp it up um, in terms of volume throughout, you know, midsummer, and then you can taper off a little bit, you know, once they start to really, you know, harden and everything like that. And, you know, you don't need to stop it completely, but I, I'd back off, I'd say August, you know, start reducing the amount because they're going to get to a point to where they're no longer needing that much. And they'll, they'll sit there and eat exactly how much they need. So, you know, they, their body tells them what they need at the time. And if you can provide it in surplus, essentially, um, it's definitely going to give you good, good results over time. Gotcha. No, that's, that's something that we do as well is, uh, we do salt licks and my dad found, uh, a little recipe probably on the GON forum years ago, but it's, uh, I believe it is two parts mineral salt, one part table salt, and one part dicalcium phosphate is what we do. And, yeah, um, that's a standard. Yeah. So that's, yes, my dad found that recipe somewhere and it's not like it's a secret. It's wide, wide, widely known, but, uh, that's, you know, we usually try to right at, right during turkey season, early spring, March, you know, right before turkey season starts sometime in March, we'll freshen up our salt licks. And then, uh, we usually don't have water with us. So we're just hoping for rain. Uh, but you know, we've got probably, uh, for, for usually in, right in front of our, some of our ladder stands in the woods, we have probably seven, eight, nine uh salt lick sites that we that we personally put out um and i tell you and over the summer i mean we get i really don't feed on our hunting land so i mean most of the pictures that i get uh over the summer if i get any good bucks it's just on salt licks i mean they're i mean i've gotten I'm not saying I'm, i've got all the big bucks on the property or on my salt licks but it's impressive to me that you, you put a salt lick out and bucks will show up at some point in the summer you know, so that's, uh, okay. yeah, they have a sense about it. And once they find it, they'll use it until they, it's either gone or they don't need it anymore. Yeah. Um, we know exactly, you know, their, their diet changes throughout the year, not only based off of what's available, but what's ideal for them at that moment. Um, right. it's the same thing with those that are lactating and stuff like that. You know, they, they um they know exactly what they need to produce uh whatever you know energy at that type of time of year or to grow antlers produce milk they they know exactly what they're looking for right and that's something that uh it's almost like clockwork open a weekend their first week or two of season for sure you know before there's a lot of hunters in the woods 
if you've got some dough, like if you can find one of your one of my, one of our Salt Lake sites that's got does coming into it pretty regularly, I mean, it's almost a slam dunk that you can at least kill with doe. Because I mean, they're they're there. You know, they may have fawns with them, but you know, if there's any that have branched off already, I mean, early in the season, though, there's they, they hit those salt looks pretty hard. Oh yeah, for us, anyways. But that's uh, I do have a, a one last question from me, and I and I, there may not be a way around this, but uh, on our hunting club in Wilkes, we've got 1,500 acres, and you know, a lot of other guys have feeders out that they keep, you know, keep filled pretty regularly. And uh, we've had hogs move back in. Yeah. And is there, I mean, apart from just hunting hogs like crazy, I mean, once they move into a feed site, I mean, it's, I mean, certain areas on the property, they can, they've kind of taken it over. They actually, hogs took over one of my salt licks, turned it into a nice big wallow. And um, so, you know, I quit freshing it up. It was, I mean, hogs galore in there at night you know but is there anything like what is your advice to someone who has a hog problem is it just hunt like crazy or i mean what's your what's your advice there well first thing you need to do is uh put your hiking boots on because that is an uphill battle buddy yeah. um it it it's one of those things that, you know, if you if your neighbors aren't helping you out, then you'll never fully get ahead of the problem, which you never completely will. I mean, hogs are going to be around, you know, they're just going to be here. They're, they're here to stay. But you can reduce their usage of your property by pressure, um, you know, killing every single one that you can when you can, hunting as much as possible. Um, when they do find feed sites and stuff like that. I mean, that, that locks into their brain and they know they can go there and get an easy meal instead of having to root around and things like that. But a, a hog's going to eat pretty much whatever it comes across and they reproduce extremely fast. So my advice, if you came up with a hog problem is at least for the short term, I would quit feeding. Um, and amp up the amount of hunting but one of the important things to do i think would be to uh talk to your neighbors talk to them about the issue um if it seems like they don't fully understand why it's an issue maybe try to you know get that across a little bit but um yeah for the most part it's it's shooting shooting and stacking man um you know you you I'm sure you've seen the how overrun Texas and Oklahoma, Arkansas, those areas are. I mean, they it's bad enough there that you know they they have aerial hog hunting businesses now where I mean you could just ride around with you know some type of AR platform and you could kill a hundred hogs a night and they could turn around and do it the next night. Um, the millions and probably billions of dollars in um, damage that they do every year it's kind of obvious that they're not going anywhere but we can at least try by trying to reduce our numbers in our immediate areas but that's really all you can do right and i figured i I figured that was that's what the answer was going to be is is kind of an uphill battle but what's what's interesting is when i was younger you know probably seven or eight you know pretty young I remember there was a, a hog wallow that we, we we would go check out. You could see the mud on the trees, you know, and, and, you know, I have those memories of it. We didn't really run cameras much back then, but, you know, 
and then so like there were hogs there then and then within the next few years there really weren't many hogs we started running cameras more like as as cameras you know trail cameras became more popular and more easy to get 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 your hands on you know we didn't really have that many pictures of them and then probably about the time that you know the feeding became legal is when the hogs you know for sure moved back in and there there there's a bunch of them there now on our property but it was just yeah. it was interesting that you know years ago they were there then there was a time when they weren't and it could have been that people on the bordering properties were feeding in the off season or feeding illegally, who knows? And that, you know, kind of pulled the hogs off the property for, you know, five, 10 years. And then, you know, they come right back. So, I mean, it's like, they're going to follow the food. So like you said, I mean, if we, if you were to quit feeding hunt enough, you could potentially, you know, help the problem a little bit, but yeah. But, yeah. You could impact them. You're not going to get rid of them, but you can impact them. Um, my immediate, uh, my, or my main property that I hunt, I've been a part of this hunting club uh, my entire life. Uh, my kids are being raised on it as third generation. My dad joined it forever ago. Um, is primarily, uh, other than the pine plantations, the rest of the whole property is swampland, completely swamp. It's 5,600 acres. We kill hogs every year on it, but it seems like every three years we'll kill a bunch. And then we won't kill but one or two a year, something like that, for a couple of years. And then all of a sudden they're back again in bunches. So I, I believe, you know, they they don't stay on a property for a very long duration of time. They just move. They just go around feeding, you know, and they end up back on yours or it's a whole other group. But, you know, they, they'll, they'll always be in and out, but you can do your best to discourage them. Gotcha. Gotcha. No, that makes sense. Well, man, I appreciate it. It's getting late, and I know you've got a busy schedule yourself and a, a pregnant wife that's hopefully going to let the baby bake a little bit longer there. Um, you said she's due in about a month, like in an end of November sometime. Is that right? Yep. Um, C-section is scheduled for Black Friday, November 24th, so the day after uh... – uh, Thanksgiving, uh, she's going to get her belly full and I'm going to get my belly full. We're going to wake up and hopefully be going to the hospital to have a baby that day. Um, praying that it doesn't come sooner, <laughs> you know, um, just be best to go, go ahead full term, but she's had some issues going on, but, uh, we keep praying for it and, uh, we're moving forward. I think we're going to be all right. Yes, sir. Yeah, we'll, we'll keep you guys in our prayers, and hopefully, like I said, hopefully she goes the whole way and everything works out fine, and y'all have a healthy little baby. Is it? Is it a boy or a girl? It's a boy. A little boy. Be my fourth boy. Fourth <laughs> boy. Yeah, I've, I've got two girls, so I'm I'm a little afraid to to try again, but <laughs> I'm 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 highly outnumbered right now. So, uh, but no, that'll be awesome, man. We'll keep on praying for you, and like I said, we'll we'll keep in touch. So hopefully. Hopefully everything works out great. I really appreciate it, bud. Yes, sir. Thank you for listening to the Bucktails Podcast.